millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. paranormal lovers and welcome to another episode of Mysteries of the Unexplained, a weekly paranormal podcast where we take a dive into the mysteries that have plagued mankind since the dawn of time. You know, chilling, just just answering questions that no scientist has ever been able to answer well. What do you think about that? <laughs> That's a new tongue-tying kind of <laughs> intro that you've done. Hello everybody and welcome to another week here with myself, yes myself and my apprentice <laughs> Anne-Marie. Oh, oh, I'm your apprentice now. Oh, I suppose, it, is that even a step up from intern where I just literally clean up dog shit and get coffee? Mm, slight, slight, slight step up. It's a new year. You have to be seen to be grown. Like. It's a new year. I'm growing. I'm coming up in the world. Speaking of dogs, I was raging today. I took the dogs for a walk and before I did, I washed all the floors in my mobile home. Now, that's about the size of two postage stamps. But yet, I was still very happy with myself. Came back from the walk and I was like, oh, look, aren't the floors lovely? Isn't it gorgeous? Walk into the house with a few sticks for the fire. And what do I drag in with me? What what do I drag in on the sole of my shoe, Will? Dog shit. Uh, it's actually like it's actually one of the worst things that can happen in the day of the the day to day running of your life. Well, like bringing dog shit into the house is actually, I think, one of the worst things that can happen. Well, it's definitely a dog shit day. And actually, I meant to say to you the last time I was at your house when I came out and got home, I realised that I had stepped in dog shit at your house as well. And I had brought it in on my carpet and then I had to clean my carpet and I never said to Greg actually was his car covered in dog shit. But it was always an issue. Oh my God. Okay, so this is starting to sound like that I just live in like a fucking like favela somewhere where there's just like dog shitting all over the street. No, that is not. That is not. We do live (laughs) on a farm. 
We do live on a farm. There's lots of grass around the way. And before I had the path made to my house, my little, my little cabin, my little. Sorry, the path um, was there when we were there. Sorry, just three. Well, I don't know where you got it. Your honor, your honor. I know where I got it today, and it was in the shed. It was in the shed because for some reason the dogs like a little bit of shelter and go into the shed where the sticks are kept and do it there. Were you in my shed stealing sticks again? Of course, seems like it. Seems like my story is unraveling. And, and Annie's Ted living in a, a hovel, by the way. <laughs> oh, Jesus, it's just the week it's for it. It's just the week. Dog shit day. Dog shit day. Ah, uh, the year is off to a great start. Um, sorry to make you all sick with that intro, guys. But this will cheer you up. We got a new Patreon this week. Yes, we did. <laughs> Thank you so much to Matt. He's our new patron for this week. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. You are the opposite of dog, dog shit being dragged into the house. Um, and I just want to remind you all that you can find us on um, Patreon at mm, Patreon forward slash Mysteries of the Unexplained. Oh no, what is it, Will? Uh, yeah, Mysteries of the Unexplained. It's in the show notes. Do you know what? That's a great thing to say. It's in the show notes. You can find our Patreon link below in the show notes. Thank you so much to you, Matt. And I want to say that this story is for you. You have a whole story for yourself and it's called... Michael and Stephen. Now, well, it's not a gay porn story. I know that your eyes probably lit up when I sent you the script, but you soon found out that was probably the opposite of a gay porn story. That is a very basic comment, Annie, for you to assume just because there's two men in the title (laughs) and me being gay that I would then think that way. But I have learned to realise that you are a very basic girl in this. So I don't really expect anything, anything other than that. I continue. Oh, this continue. Is, Will is like a dog. This is going to be great. OK, roll it. Roisin. Roisin. Yeah. Hello. Roll the tape there. Thank you. Michael and Stephen. This is a tale of a senior business executive from Philadelphia. Mr. Michael O'Mara. As the name suggests, Michael has some Irish ancestry, but after three generations in America, the Celtic element has become much more diluted than O'Mara would suggest. Michael was a somewhat straight-laced and very hard-working man, and by his own account, there was only one thing he despised more than laziness, and that was drunkenness. It was something of a shock, therefore, for Michael, in his first past life regression to find himself totally and uncontrollably involved in the character of a Mr. Stephen Garrett, an idle, drunken layabout in Dublin at the end of the 19th century, living rough in stables and alleys and preoccupied only with where his next glass of whiskey, porter or the illegal and lethal putcheen was coming from. This tale was explored with Michael O'Mara in an extraordinary amount of detail in one of the earliest and finest drawn character studies of the phenomena of past life regression. Now, William, I know we've done a little bit about the old past life regression before and we've had a few amazing tales. But this one is particularly detailed and actually imparts really, really gas. And it came from this book called... Encounters with the Past, How Man Can Experience and Relive History. 
Now, this book was published all the way back in the day of 1979 and it was one of the first long form explorations of past life regression. And one of these explorers was a Mr. Michael O'Mara. Now, he doesn't really sound like the type that I'd be into it. He sounds very, very straight laced, very square now. Oh, right. But he did have a particular interest in past life regression. So he goes to this hypnotherapist and this is the tale that slowly becomes uncovered. Although positive facts such as names and dates are rare in the story, the atmosphere and circumstantial evidence that builds up a very telling and impressive case of the desperate condition of Ireland at the end of the 19th century. Through the incredible detail Michael can apparently recall, he builds up a very vivid picture of the city of Dublin itself and the character of the person being recalled. When the potato blight struck Ireland in 1845, millions of people who were completely dependent on potatoes were left starving. The population of the country was depleted as one million people died, while one million emigrated to the US and other countries. A significant proportion also died from typhus and cholera on coffin ships as they attempted to flee the famine. 55 years later, by the turn of the century, the country was still struggling badly. Of those that remained in the country, 55% were what one yearbook of 1901 euphemistically described as indefinite or non-productive in occupation. Bad potato harvests had returned in the last decade of the century and increased the grinding poverty which made the bitter political struggle for independence more savage. In its turn, this brought more repression, more troops from the mainland and Britain. Food was hard to come by. Infant mortality was extremely high, as was unemployment. An uneducated man from an ordinary background was going to find it hard to get by. Many turned to petty theft and the likes. And of course, it's Ireland, so many more turned to the drink. The astonishing story that comes from the mind of Michael O'Mara, this somewhat uptight, straight-laced office guy from Philadelphia in the 70s, is a story of struggle, poverty, loss and longing. It is also a story that tends to jump around. One very moving sequence talks about this Irishman as a small child and another at his death at about the age of just 27. The story often becomes confused, but we will relay it here in as chronological an order as we can. Now, Will, I did text you earlier today and said... I really recommend that you have a drink for tonight's podcast because you are going to yeah. be playing this character. Do you think you can pull this off? Well, you see, I don't now drink during sittings, Annie, because the spirit will <laughs> enter my body and whatever will come out will come out. I don't need alcohol. Oh, okay. That's how powerful I am. No. I'm kind of like Prue Halliwell well. out of the Charm Sisters, <laughs> the more prominent sister. That's the stronger one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You couldn't be one of the sisters that just had the shitter strengths. You'd have to be the bit. You'd have to be the main bitch, wouldn't you? You'd ha- like you're like the the meanest girl from Mean Girls. I don't know what you're talking about, Annie. I just it's just the universe kind of picks the people, and unfortunately for you, you were just picked as as a extra in season two. <laughs> a woman carrying flowers <laughs> that steps and dog shit. <laughs> You continue. <laughs> yeah. 
In this regression, at first, it was assumed that the opening sequences were blurred and muttered in the way typical of many early regressions. But as it continued, long after things should have become clearer, the suspicion of drunkenness crept in and it kept going. Indeed, this Irish man even manages to get a drink in a pub during this very regression. Confused? Me too. Let's meet this rogue. So uh, just just for clarity, guys, uh, I'm going to be playing the, the hypnotherapist slash interviewer and Will is going to be playing a drunken Irish lout. I don't think we have to really push too far for that one. Hello there. Nice to meet you. Let me have your name. Thirsty, uh, thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, here you are. Drink this. How's that now? Uh, uh, that's water. <laughs> oh, uh, what did you expect? Uh, what drink were you expecting? Uh, what do you usually drink? What is your favourite drink? Sure, any kind of drink. Oh, I, I, and why is it you want to drink? Is it hot? Is that why you want to drink? Or is it because you're ill? Or is it because you're afraid you want to drink? No, it's because I'm dry I want to drink. <laughs> from now on, Michael's voice took on a progressively very different from his educated East Coast American. It was not the incomprehensible slang and pronunciation of the Dublin slums, which the original Stephen would probably have used, but what is generally accepted as an Irish in entertainment. He was, he said, standing in a street by a bridge. Now, the interviewer, somewhat perplexed, not knowing if the subject is speaking another language or under the effect of drink, hypnotically drunk, of course, asks, um, You said you were standing by a bridge. What is the bridge over? What do you see when you look down? River. Oh, and what is the name of the river? You've been standing there. You must know the name of the river. Oh, it's... it's... it's the... it's... it's... Okay then. Well, well, what kind of a bridge is it? The bridge has got uh, it's a rail made of stone and things that go on that go like that. And there's hundreds of them. Oh, and what is up the other side of the bridge? The street goes on up up ahead. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay, and let me ask you this. How are you dressed now? Look down at yourself and tell me what you're wearing. My trousers are not very nice. Oh, oh, and what's the matter with them? Ripped, they're comic. <laughs> oh, they're ripped, are they? Um, and can I ask you this? What is your name? Dunno. Oh, um, do you know what town you're in? It's a city. Oh, a city, is it? Are there many, many cars about? Oh, oh no, there aren't many cars about. Oh, but you do know what a car is, though. Uh, yeah. Something to note here. This seemed to indicate that the date was well into the 20th century. But in the event, the question backfired in a way it did on several occasions with this gentleman's regressions. When later it seemed evident that Stephen's period was in the 1890s, cars in the Dublin streets seemed the one glaring error in what was otherwise a regression remarkably consistent. Cars wouldn't have been commonplace on the Irish streets for another 15 years, but it is possible he had seen one on a show at this stage as there were some in the country. <laughs> 
In a later session, he was suddenly asked how many wheels a car had, and without a moment's hesitation, he answered two. When asked what made it go, he replied with a touch of scorn, horse? And it was then realised that he must have been referring quite genuinely to the Irish jaunting car and not an automobile. It soon became obvious that this young man, who had no job and was living rough in stables and alleyways on the streets of Dublin, the city he named, a young man of the street, and he was asked about his relations with the police. Now, um, have you ever been in the hands of the police? Maybe I have. And and how did they catch you? I think I might have been a bit obvious. Oh, you were picking pockets? No, no. Oh, stealing from stalls at the side of the road? Just food. <laughs> That's okay then. And when you had this brush with the police, what uniforms did they wear? Now, here Stephen smartly goes on to say that they wear two very different types of hat. This sounds correct about the police, as there were two types of law keepers on the streets of Dublin at this time. Round police helmets were worn by the Irish constabulary and the Land League, but the Land League, however, wore tall police helmets. Okay, sir, and, and what is the first shop you see then? It's a tea shop. No, it's no, it's not a, you, you go in there and they pour it out for you, you eat, eat a tea. You go in there and get a tea and eat. Oh, and what would they charge you for a tea and eat? Oh, I wouldn't know that. Oh, well, if you paid, what would you pay in? Uh, well, pennies. I'd say Stephen wasn't paying for much back in the day. In a slightly more lucid, though still not very coherent moment, Stephen was taken back to O'Connell Bridge and asked about ships. He described seeing ships with paddle things that make them go. This is astonishing because although sailboats would have been a very everyday sight in Dublin, this would have been about the time that a number of paddle steamers would have been arriving in this part of the world. And their size, power and unusual windmill-like paddles would surely have made a lasting impression on the locals. He also described a palace or castle-like building, which is believed to be the impending custom house building on the Dublin Quays. After he guided them around more of the city, the hypnotist once again tried to ascertain the name of this individual, something he had not as yet been able to get. Also, it is evident that this character's pervading thoughts about alcohol are paramount. No matter where the facilitator takes him, the question of drink arises sooner or later. So, sir, what is your name? You must have a name. What is it? Uh, uh Stephen? Uh, uh, Stephen, Stephen. Oh, and do you have another name? Don't they call you Mr. Something? <laughs> they do not. Uh, and what would they shout if they wanted you to come? <laughs> they wouldn't want me to come. They'd want me to go. I'm thirsty. <laughs> so the facilitator thinks that the best thing to do at this instance would be to take this man for a drink. So, well, here's the bar. Now, what would you like to drink? Uh, porter. 
Randall Porter, that's a nice pint, all right. What would you like to chase it down? Whiskey. Oh, any particular brand? There are lots of whiskies in here. Oh, no, just whiskey. Irish. Irish whiskey. Now, it is interesting to note here that porter is a word that is very old and used to describe a very heavy, dark beer like Guinness. It was relatively cheap, especially among working men, particularly in Ireland. It is a word which Michael O'Mara would never use in his waking state, though he was vaguely aware when questioned afterwards that it was some kind of beer. When he was brought round, he said how much he had physically enjoyed the taste of the porter, which he could actually feel going down his throat. On another occasion, someone mentioned Pucheen, the illicit and notorious spirit made in Ireland from almost any material available. So Stephen, do you like Pucheen, Stephen? Pucheen, I, I do not like it. Oh no. Oh, and why not? I should have thought you'd be very fond of it. Ah, people who drink that stuff, they got, I mean, they got hair coming out of their feet. And they don't, and they don't wear shoes and it's just as well because they couldn't afford them anyway. (laughs) This Stephen lad is like, like, like any regular old fella that you meet down in the pub. Like, he could be from 1890 and he could literally be from today. But let's see, has he got any more evidence to um, support his case here? After another length of questioning, it was ascertained that Stephen must have been somewhere about in his late teens at this stance. Oh, Jesus, he sounds about 92. In another session, he appears altogether more pained. His face tightened in anxiety and his brow creased. He recounts it's about five years since we met him in Dublin and there has been some trouble with him and two of his friends. I must have fell over. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to those lads. Oh, where where exactly were you, Stephen? It's an empty place. An empty place, just bare boards. Three of us. And we had this desperate stuff. Desperate stuff. Oh, God, it could have been devils. There was no doubt that at this moment, Stephen was going through the realities of the hangover from hell, holding his head constantly. And though when Michael wakened, he felt only the usual dryness and taste, under hypnosis, he was extremely ill. His eyeballs ached, his head throbbed as if it would burst at the slightest movement, and his throat seemed raw and lacerated, as if he had been swallowing acid. Towards the end of his life, Stephen had gone so far that he now enjoyed the putching he had once disliked so much. Although it was difficult to judge Stephen's real age, it seemed that the slightly amusing antics of the drunk had become rather sordid. In a later regression, he confessed. Oh, so what about the putching, Stephen? Ah, it's, it's not, not bad. But that other stuff, Christ, it would go, wouldn't go past me mouth. What other stuff is that, Stephen? Ah, it's white and red and and then it's pink. Oh, is it called a red biddy? Ah, there's a woman called Red Biddy, a great fat woman. You can see her in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) 
She refused to elaborate on why one could see Red Biddy in the dark, whether it was her bulk, her alcoholic complexion or her profession. But another observer had a very interesting comment to make on the drink of that name. It was, he said, a mixture of port wine or occasionally whiskey and methylated spirits, which in the 19th century was colourless, with the cheap dark red port in the bottom of the glass and the colourless methylated spirits on top, this could well have been the red and white pink mixture that Stephen described. Certainly, there can be no doubting its lethal properties. Not unexpectedly, Michael had not the slightest knowledge of the name Red Biddy or a drink made from Mets or such like and was absolutely astounded when he heard what he had been talking about as Stephen. In later regressions, Stephen became more fluent about what was happening in the country of Ireland at the time. Stephen, tell me this. Who is supposed to be ruling the country? Who's in charge? It's uh, it's uh, generals or something like that. It's all these soldiers. They're the ones that run the country. And has anything terrible been happening lately, Stephen? Oh, it's terrible, terrible. There's no... It's a miserable time... The, People on the streets, they have nothing, the poor beggars. Well, why is this happening, Stephen? Has there been a famine or something? There, it's all, all people leaving, they're going. There's not enough venting about in this country. There's not even many people left now. And them that are left are all over on the street. Is it worse than it was ten years ago, Stephen, or is it better? Ah, oh, ah, it's no, no, you can't get worse than dead terrible. I thought of going to England, but there's enough buggers there. We'll never get rid of them English. (laughs) From the point of view of hearing specific names and incidents, this sequence seems like a disappointment. Stephen is not able to establish the political rule in the country at the moment. But we must remember that if Stephen's character was ever a real person, he was illiterate perhaps unintelligent, a solitary soul and for much of the time fuddled with the drink. His ambitions seem to revolve around drink and throughout all of his regressions it is a central theme. One always sensed that the character Stephen was very ill at ease on the several occasions he, he was questioned about the political situation, perhaps because there was a very positive conscious unconscious conflict in these sequences. Although in the political sequences Stephen keeps up a steady sniping at the English, there never seems a great deal of venom in his insults. They are almost the routine and unthinking parrot chatter typical of so many members of protests and political movements. But a very real bitterness does creep into his voice when he talks of what he sees as traitors and quizlings. There's a lot of people going on about what's it, these English. It's the Irish ones that are my problem. They want more money. They want to be the big fellas. They, I give you, they're working for the English, but they're Irish. And they shoot the Irish. Stephen, are you a vagrant? I am no such thing. Oh, but what do you do? You say you do not work for a living and have no home. No, it's not easy. You know, well, when there's no trade and you'd have got a, you haven't got a trade, where, where are you? And what trade was your father? Whatever trade it was, he's practising it somewhere else now. And what about your mother? She's, she, she's gone, she's, she's dead. 
How old were you when your mother died? I just small, small. And who looked after you after your mother died? No one. And have you never really worked at anything? Staying alive. Do you remember living anywhere other than in the corner of a stable? It's... it is like a nest. It's like a bird's nest. It's round and warm and... and you get in the middle. <laughs> now I have to say, I was... I was a little bit sketchy here whether he was talking about living in the bale of hay or what he was talking about here. I presume he's just talking about living in the bale of hay. Yeah, he probably has straw. Straight straw and hay, yeah. A little round little bed. He's got a little hole and he's that he's happy out then because it says it says that when they were interviewing he was almost ecstatic talking about his home his bed in the hay barn in 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 the bale of hay. God bless the man. It's little things in life you see. It was a good thing for Stephen and the thousands like him that there was a Victorian upper class pastime of slumming do-gooding and providing food for the poor who were ever with us. There was the bread from a nice lady who stood by the bridge, he said, unspecified food from the nuns occasionally, and when his welcome had been worn out from a soup kitchen run by some English ladies. When Michael was awakened, he said that he could see the street that they lived on very clearly under hypnosis. But in the characteristic manner of subjects under aggression, he did not describe it because nobody asked him. It was, he said, a long street of three-storey terraced houses with a low wall in the front, surrounded by iron railings. At one end was a cemetery, at the other end a main road. The houses seemed rather grand for his family circumstances, but Michael said that he felt much more like him and Ma lived only in a basement, which seems much much more likely. Certainly, the garret standard of living did not seem very high. Also, when the interviewee asked Stephen to return to when he was about six years old, the speech mentality and gestures, the experience of a small, astonished and overwhelmed little boy was astonishing. The incoherence here is not the stupidity of alcohol, but the sheer inability to express the emotions that surged through him. The interviewer asked Stephen, Has your mother ever taken you to church? Did you go last Sunday? I've been to church. I'm uh, holding the hand. It's big. He answers in the same wistful tones about playing marbles with his friends on the streets and remembers being warm in bed at night, which is a comforting thought when we have explored the hardship of his later life. Later regressions explain that it was about the age of 12 when life turned for the worse, perhaps with the death of his mother, leaving him to fend for himself. Then, in a startling turn, the reviewer brings him to his last day on earth. Instantly, extreme distress was apparent. His head moved painfully from side to side and his left hand made feeble plucking movements at his leg, which was held out rigidly in front of him and seemed to be causing intense pain. The speech in this sequence was slurred, incoherent and often inaudible and seemed to be the rambling of delirium rather than drunkness. Stephen, where are you, Stephen? Oh. What is the matter? Tis can't, oh. What can't you do? Ah, legs can't get out of this thing. Is it a bed? Is it a bed you can't get out of? 
Can't get out this Nah, it's a wooden thing. It's a wooden thing they got me in. And why can't you get out of it? I'm stuck. They put me in there, them buggers. They think I'm a criminal. And are you a criminal? I am no criminal. <laughs> I just... I was just in the way. I should have been out of the way, but I was in the way and they got me. I feel awful, I do. Through this episode, hints of the reality of the situation, if there is any reality, come to us. He was knocked down by a cart in Grafton Street, possibly a horse and cart, and left lying in the bitterly cold, wet street. He seems to have been picked up by police or some other uniformed people and taken to a hospital or an institution, dying of a combination of shock, starvation and alcoholism. He kept repeating that he had been in the way, indicating the way of the cart and that he could not move his leg that was now sticking out at an unnatural angle. He raved of a trial before a lord but didn't know the charge. He said he was brought to the cells below and beaten by the fat bugger with the stick. Is it a jail you are in, Stephen? Looks like it. There's a window up on the wall and there's bars. And uh, in the sky, the sky's outside. Stephen was then told to come to the last moments he remembered in his life, which it seemed could not have been long after the last extract. Instantly, the anguish disappeared from his face and the shaking, which had persisted throughout the sequence, stopped. After a few moments of dead silence, Stephen began the very low, gentle humming that he had remembered as his six-year-old self. What are you humming, Stephen? Are you singing a song? I was thinking, like a little baby, warm, it's warm. A strange expression, half wonder, half peace, filled Stephen's face. Are you warm now, Stephen? Are you happy? I'm all right now. Got got the bed covers is all right now, and the sun is still coming right down there. Ah, nice. Ah, now. Ah, uh, As the last sibilant faded into silence and his head fell forwards, the personality that had been Stephen was gone. And the personality that is Michael was lost somewhere in a strange limbo, incapable of speech or action. Stephen Garrett was gone, and Michael O'Mara, the businessman from Philadelphia, was left with many more questions than answers. I'm Michael O'Mara. I'm back now. I'm an I'm Irish roots, <laughs> but I live in America. <laughs> I have just been petty Irishman for about 16 fucking hours. <laughs> well, though, isn't that a fascinating story of regression? It, it, you know, it like, is very mad. It's fucking mad. Like, this guy had never been to Ireland, nor was he, like, a big history buff, you know, about, like, 
things that would have happened in Ireland at the turn of the 19th century. So it was like 1890, maybe five or six or whatever. That's when they, um, with the descriptions of Dublin that Stephen gave, that's where it was. And he said like very, very local, like a lot of localisms, um, words that Michael would never have heard, like places that he would never have heard of, like slang from Dublin that he would never have heard of. Like, you know, like there was just again and again and again, these things. And they said as well that in they said in the book as well that, do you know, when um, he was in the jail and that his leg was like sticking out kind of half wonky because he was after getting hit by the yeah by the horse and cart well that like Michael was sitting in the room with his leg like at a real like not at an unnatural angle like a broken angle or whatever but like he was sitting there as himself but with his leg sticking out real funny like telling the hypnotherapist that like it had been rolled over by a horse and cart and that he remembered like the taste of porter and he remembered like so many amazing things and you know what's crazy as well that straight after this regression he starts talking about being a girl in, in in England back in the, I don't know, 1500s or something like that. He's got loads of different, like he can recall like lots and lots of different past lives. Very, very weird. It's very strange. Like, I don't know. Is it like that you just kind of connect to this kind of consciousness and then you like, download the memories of like some other memories that had been uploaded to the universe or is the fact that your soul was an, in another body years ago and you know you are just going through these lives like learning lessons and you learning something as you go on and developing your soul and building yeah know. like that's very much what Buddhism is all about isn't it mm. some people think that as well that it's not like it's not a, a case of like okay I was this person and then I come back as this person it's like like you said that all time and all lives are like running concurrently and just for this period of time Michael in America just plugged into this life of this other guy that's somehow living on a different sphere at the same time which is like blowing my mind to even try and comprehend what I'm actually saying right now Mm, very weird like I'd like to know more about like this guy this this guy that regressed him like who is he or was he prominent or just some randomer so the book itself is written by Joe Keaton and he uh, was a guy back in the 70s and he had done, he conducted over 8,000 regressions. Oh, oh, 8,000. And he wrote this book which was kind of like um, kind of groundbreaking back in the day and the book is called Encounters with the Past How Man Can Experience and Relive History. Uh, it's by Peter Moss but it's with Joe Keaton and Joe Keaton is the, the hypnotherapist himself and uh, I actually got this book from an online library guys it is out there you can get them and there's like dozens of different stories in this really really uh, really really detailed ones as well there's a few really famous ones in it and um like there's people going back to Salem that were witches that were like burnt at the stake and there's re- one really famous case of a lady called Edna oh what was her name Edna Edna Krabappel Edna Krabappel her name is Edna Krabappel I'll find that name and I'll put it I'll put it in the show notes for you as well because this is another and you can read about it online as well but this book has like I, I, I was like spoiled for choice but I thought that you'd be able to play a drunken Irishman um well better than you did let's say but maybe you're just maybe that's just the date that's in it I, sorry guys if that was annoying for you or not uh, I apologise I don't really care 
Um, I just had to work with the material given to me, guys. (laughs) (laughs) And now, you guys, you know what it's time for. It's time for another live line. The live line is now. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Open. Hi again. Just to let you know another what another story. Um what happened was my first dog, she was a Westie Cross Border Collie. She was so placid, so lovely. I was just laying in bed one night, I was about 12, 13. And I remember I was asleep, the dog was asleep, and the dog woke me up growling. She was on my bed at the next side of me and she started growling, which is something she never did. And I woke up, I looked where the dog was looking, and across the floor there was this shadow blacker than black and it was crawling along the floor and it crawled along the wall up across the ceiling and out through the light socket in the ceiling my dog Bess watched it all the way go across oh my god this poor listener right this is not the first Absolutely fucking terrifying story that this listener has, and thank you so much by the way, has sent in to us. But like, you're saying that you and the dog just kind of calmly watched this yoke 
crawl across the floor, up the ceiling and into the light socket and you're you're alive and apparently functioning quite well after it. I can't. Lads. Very, 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 very terrifying. Yeah, this listener actually sent in an experience uh, to our um, Patreon episode this week. So uh, if you want to have a look at that, you can check it out. But or listen to that, you can check it out. But yeah, very, very weird. But maybe she's just a very open person to the side of spirit and can kind of see these things. Part of me I is know. very jealous, actually. There's... I- Yes, there's a small part of me when I hear stories like this and especially people who have had repeat experiences that I'm kind of like, oh, like, oh, like, because I'm interested in this stuff. And I'm like, oh, nothing like that has ever happened. Well, apart from that thing that grabbed me by the arm in your house one night, which I just don't really want to talk about ever again. And But maybe that's the reason. Maybe the universe just knows that I'm not fit nor able for such encounters that I would be locked up in a home somewhere. And, you know, in 1980s Ireland, I would have been locked up and the key thrown away. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, he would have been um, sent to the loony bin and that would have been it. Uh, oh, yeah, my It's very God. weird. It's mad the way like people experience these things. Um, and I think it's very telling that the dog in this situation who, uh, and we all know that animals are often more tuned to these things that than we are, like watched the same shadow, like tracked it with her eyes at the same time as you. So that kind of gives me that, you know, that would give me a kind of a reassuring feeling as being like, OK, it's not just me that saw it, like mm. the dog saw it as well, who sounds so cute, by the way. Oh, how much do we love dogs? We just love dogs. But have you or your dog had any? crazy paranormal experiences what you can do if you had just like this lovely listener did is write into us here on the show lads we got a new phone so we did for the new year and we have a new phone number yes we do we're going up in the world and you can catch us on whatsapp viber or signal and the number is plus three five three eight nine six one seven two one three one and you can give us a little voice note of your paranormal slash creepy slash I don't know maybe you're just having a bad day send us a little message there we'll see if we can help and I will put that number in the show notes also Will will be back on Wednesday with another Mo Too Weird Wednesday that is a Wednesday where we just talk about weird shit on Wednesday it's a little little something to get you over the hump day isn't it Will? That's right yeah it's a little something that'll get you through the week that we'd like to deliver to you guys so you can sign up there everything you need to know about us is in the show notes so just click on that you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram Patreon whatever um, and all the links are below thank you so much thank you to Will for embodying the spirit of a drunk Irish man I think that the only problem was Will that you didn't get drunk enough for this episode so I order thee to have a vodka and slimline tonic oh I will now I will now for that (laughs) thank you for ordering me Queen Annie I'm going to have a double thank you so much for joining us thank you catch us next week on the flip side when we delve into more mysteries of the unexplained.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.